I'm Dr. Josefa Fogel-Rubel. This is a podcast episode brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Parshat Yitro is one of Shmot's most monumental parshiot. It opens with the reunion of Moshe with the rest of his family, with his father-in-law Yitro and his wife and children. Yitro first listens to Moshe's recounting of recent miraculous events, Yitziat Mitzrayim and their great exodus from uh, from the land of Egypt and the the great chase that happens there with Paro and all of the Egyptians. And then Yitro verbally recognizes God's greatness, demonstrating the exact Yidiyat Hashem, the awareness of God, that God tried to instill in the Egyptians through the plague process. After this, following the true ways of the wise, Yitro observes Moshe's judiciary leadership and then offers unsolicited advice. Create a system of judiciary delegation to relieve yourself from the burden of adjudicating over each and every case. This establishment of a human judicial system forms a moving introduction to the receiving of divine law on Har Sinai. The second half of the Parsha recounts the preparation for and receiving of the Ten Commandments. Beautifully, Nechama Leibovitz explains that the phrase Yediyat Hashem, repeated ten times, according to her count, throughout the plagues, parallels the ten dibrot, enforcing the idea that the plagues functioned as theological preparation for the Israelites' acceptance of the commandments. This Parsha brings us deep into what we called in the beginning of this series, the second section of Shemot, which focuses on Brit Sinai and all of its details. Today, I am pleased to welcome a new guest to the podcast, Ni'iman Ovetsky, who is both the co-founder of alatorah.org, which we'll speak about further along in the conversation, and teaches Torah in Midrashat Moria, MMY, and Midrashat Nishmat. Ni'iman, it's a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to be here, Ezra. And so today we're going to jump into Parshati Tro. I'll say also, I remember last year, his personality, what he comes and possibly represents is something that really captured us as well. And today we're going to open up with speaking about him from a whole bunch of different directions. And the Parshan that we'll be showcasing today is Radatz Hoffman, but we'll get to him a little bit later in the conversation. So why don't you bring us into the elements of Yitro, his personality, uh, what he brings to the table in the Book of Shmot that interests you? Okay, so I think Yitro is a fascinating figure in Sefer Shmot. Um, he's a foreigner, and yet, at least according to many people, he's simultaneously Moshe's father-in-law. And in Tanakh, almost all foreigners tend to be negative. They're hostile to Am Yisrael. They're an enemy. You have Paro, obviously, on one side. You have Amalek. And then all of a sudden, we meet Yitro and Parsha Yitro, and he's this very, very positive character. Um, and I think... Another, you know, interest, I guess, in the nexus of his being a foreigner and yet related to Moshe is the very question of, wait, if he's a foreigner and not just a foreigner, but according to the Psukim, he's a Kohen of Midian, he's seemingly an idolatrous priest, then how can he possibly be Moshe's father-in-law? Um, and I think it's so interesting that commentators question almost every aspect of him. First of all, does Kohen Midian need an idolatrous priest? Or maybe it actually refers to a political leader. Is, Moshe's, is he Moshe's father-in-law at all? Or actually, maybe not, since in Parag Bet, when we first have Moshe marrying Tipora, we're told that it's Ruel who is her father. Later on, we're going to be introduced to Chovav, who is the Ben of Ruel, Chotin Moshe. And it's not clear if Chotin Moshe then goes on Ruel or goes on Chovav. So you have all these different people referred to as Chotin Moshe, including, obviously, Yitro. 
So again, he's obviously related to Moshe, but it's a father, a brother-in-law, something else. Um, and then, of course, this question of whether or not he ever converts, did convert, does he convert in our parsha when we talk about his getting to Yiziat Hashem? Um, and if he doesn't convert, or he wasn't converted and he was idolatrous, then why in the world is Moshe marrying it to his family, whether he is his father or not? So all of that totally intrigues me. And I think one last thing, um, just you know, thinking about our parsha itself, is this fact that not only is he a positive father, he's a positive father-in-law, if we're assuming, or in-law, let's say, just you know, to get all different possibilities. In general, it's not so easy to be on good terms with your in-laws, as many of us might know. And Baruch Hashem, I have an amazing relationship with my in-laws, but we all know that, that there's challenges there. Um, but in Tanakh also, other gandals of like Lavan and Yaakov, that's not a positive relationship. Shal and Zavid, that's not a positive relationship. And here we have a foreigner who is potentially idolatrous, who seems to be having this amazing relationship with his with his potential son-in-law, who is also giving him advice, and at least seemingly, Moshe is willing to take that advice. So all that I find so fascinating. I guess I have a few thoughts in response. One is that assuming that he it, he is what it says, and he is a priest of some sort of other culture, of Midianite culture. I think that, first of all, just on its most basic level, this Parsha sort of provides a model for, we might call it intergenerational diversity, right? It provides some sort of model for, well, we can literally be of different belief traditions, which is obviously, even if we go to the religious or not religious or the other permutations that we know uh, that are are familiar to so many of us in our own family dynamics. But it gives us, I think, a good model for the fact that we, we can have that diversity and it can work well. I think, though, the way that it works, right, notice that Yitro is somebody who never actually agrees to live with Moshe. Moshe even extends an invitation later on, but there's something about the space that exists between them. They're not going through life together. They're not living in a chabula altogether, but there is something that they keep distant, and I think that that distance also keeps the relationship positive. I think that might even be like one of the one of the keys to the way that this really functions. And, and regarding the fact that I just want to go back to the first piece you mentioned about the fact that he's a non-Jewish uh, member or figure, figure, a non-Jewish figure in in Tanakh. So it's interesting because we really have a whole a whole host of those. I, I will just say that last year's conversation, I believe it was last year, with the Alibuots, we really focused much more on that piece, on all of these other figures in Tanakh. And very often they actually provide like this interesting middle space, right? There's some that are very negative, obviously, and there are some that actually provide this interesting middle space. So they're actually very righteous and actually really get what's happening. And it's, and it's Dafka, the, the Israelite that's supposed to sort of learn either from their deep belief of thinking about Rahav or they're, 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 and also I think Yitro. And, and the last piece I'll say, and I really want to hear what you have to think about all that, what you think about all this is the idea that I always think there's something very moving about the fact that the Parsha that is where we receive the Aserat HaDibrot, Dafka opens up with the wisdom that we can get from the other nations. And so there's almost this piece that says, before you assume that all the wisdom is with you and you're the ones who received and you're the chosen ones, just know that, you know, Chochmah Gamba Goyim, meaning there are also a lot of other people in the world who have a lot to offer us. So don't become too uh, insular and cut off from the world around you because then you'll miss out on some really positive and, and helpful advice. Yeah, so I think that's also totally fascinating. And I think you're right that embedded in the way Parsha Yitro is set up, where we have this foreigner coming, giving advice, and giving judicial advice that's going to soon lead sort of into Parsha Mishpatim, um, 
you then you know move into math and Torah, which are something this though is Torah. Um, and you know, and, and having that combination is so so important. Um, later, if we actually have a chance to talk about um, Yitro's advice itself, um, maybe we'll get back to the beautiful Akedat Yitzchak, which I think was really far in trying to show how just how much Yitro was actually contributing to to Am Yisrael, and maybe Dafka because he's an outsider. Um, that sometimes you need someone from the, the outside to be able to look in to be able to give advice that you can't from, from within. Um, one thing though that I, I do think is interesting, you know, talking about looking at all these other outsider foreigner figures in Tanakh whom we have so much to learn from, I find it fascinating that Midrash takes almost every one of those characters that we're supposed to learn from and in the end converts them to be Jewish, right? So according to Chazal, like Rachav becomes Jewish, Bat Paro becomes Jewish. Um, you know, root, you know, that, that was at least a little thing more embedded in the text itself, if you're saying, you know, alokai, alokai. Um, but still, you know, even um, even Makashva, right? Like like almost every character that has some positive interaction and some influential type of statement or role modeling, et cetera, Chazah suggests, oh, and they must have converted, which to some extent like undermines like what we were suggesting as, oh, there's wisdom in the outside. It's like Midrash is saying, there's wisdom in the outside, but don't worry, they get to such a point where they're automatically going to join us in the end. And I do think also just if, if we're talking about the potential of, of, of Yitro having converted or not, when people thinking about Moshe's relationship with him and perhaps what are the what were things might have been in common, even if they're so different, if we're assuming that he was idolatrous and Moshe's Moshe Rabbeinu, um, is maybe the very fact that if you're cocaine, it means that you're serious about religion. Even if it's a different religion, God is a very big part of your day, of the way that you think about it. Like I remember that when I was in college, I went to secular college and I had, a, I had three roommates. One was a secular Jew and one was an Orthodox Christian. And I don't know if we call it Orthodox, whatever, meaning uh, an observant Christian, whatever word you would use. And I had so much more in common with the person who cared a lot about religion, I mean, I got along, you know, and everyone was beautiful in the, in, in the room, but we had a lot in common because we talked about religion, even if we didn't agree on the religious points, there's a perspective of this is something that's very important to me. And so I think that is, you know, an interesting way of looking at it, though I think it's also possible that when Moshe actually meets Yitro for the first time, something that we sometimes forget is that maybe Moshe wasn't yet Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, you know, if we're asking, like, how can Moshe Rabbeinu decide to go and marry a daughter of an idolatrous priest? Like, isn't that opposite values? That's assuming that Moshe Rabbeinu is Moshe Rabbeinu, and he was, quote-unquote, like, from, from birth, when it's very possible that Moshe growing up in the palace was on a journey. And that at the time that he came to Midian, he wasn't yet Moshe Rabbeinu. He might have been spiritual, he might have, you know, obviously had the potential to be Moshe Rabbeinu, but whether or not he was yet Moshe Rabbeinu, I think is a very big question mark. I think that it's very possible if you grew up in the palace that you were in a different place, you know, and there's that there's that very famous um, Midrash in the Mechilta, which talks about um, that, that Yitro made a deal with Moshe when Moshe said, I want to marry Tzipporah, and Yitro makes a deal with him, and he says, you can marry Tzipporah, but only if, the first child that you have is for Avodazara. Afterwards, the rest of your children can be for Amisrael. So Jess and Moshe said, yeah. 
Okay. And you think about it, and part of you is like, every time like I've ever taught that to my students, my students are like, what are you talking about? There's no way Moshe would have agreed to that. How could Moshe possibly agree to that? But if you view Moshe as perhaps not being yet Moshe Rabbeinu, maybe Moshe agreed because at that point, that's where he was on his journey, and he only progresses to become Moshe Rabbeinu. And then, then there's like the story of Moshe moving from, let's say, non-attachment to attachment. Okay? And then perhaps you have this parallel story of Yitro in his own life, also going from attachment to one God to finally attachment to, to Hashem. Um, of course, obviously not everyone agrees with that. And then you have the other portraits of either Yitro already having converted then, or Yitro at least being on the road to conversion already then. And obviously you have all this different, you know, permutation. I love that image of both of them being on some sort of journey, right? As opposed to like the final form of Moshe and the final form of Yitro. I think that really, that for me opened up like such a different way of thinking about Moshe, who obviously, I mean, over many decades, right, went through a tremendous identity shift in his lifetime. Uh, And... And I also, I mean, I think many of us can identify this in our own life. I mean, in my life, it's so obvious that it doesn't take any sort of psychologist to figure out that, you know, my husband has a mother who is an academic and a father who teaches Torah, and he married someone who is an academic who teaches Torah. Do you know what I'm saying? Meaning that we that we all sort of, uh, again, not everybody in the same openly obvious way, but, but this idea that we um, were attracted to something and and that they're both, you know, very passionate about their religion, even though it might not be the same thing. I think that that's first, just like in a psychological level, a very, very deep, important point. And that it can create a real common bond, even of deep respect, even if in the end they're worshiping, they're worshiping something different. But again, that image of, of Moshe being on a journey and that maybe when he met, again, I want to just remind our audience that, that marrying a non-Israelite does not have the same, uh, the same baggage that it comes with when we hear about it today. So let's not go into this, like, how did Moshe marry someone from that family? Because that was a very different story. However, it was also, you know, he, in the end, is actually, is unlike what was usually the case, he really was being involved much more into that family structure, at least initially, because he didn't have his own family structure. So there is something slightly more complicated, and it could be that only as time went on, and Moshe's Israelite identity and his relationship with God, of course, becomes much more developed, that that tension might have grown, and then that need for space might have also grown. So one other thing that I think is really interesting when we think about Yitro's journey um, is what makes him get to Hashem. So the Pasuk says, you know, Atayadati Kigadol Hashem Mikola Elokim. That's not an exact quote. Um, but basically, the idea of, and now I know God, that he's greater than all the other gods. And here too, Chazal look very closely at the language and say he's greater than all the other gods. Wait, what do you mean all the other gods? And they present a picture of Yitro as someone who had been on this intellectual search, religious journey questioning and questioning and questioning and going from one religion to another or the equivalent of a religion, one God to another and trying each one out and saying, oh, wait, is this truth? Oh, no, it's not. Go to the next one. Is that truth? No, it's not. And continuing and looking and looking and looking. And I think it's such a fascinating question. What leads someone? Like if you hadn't been brought up religious and you turn religious or if you hadn't been brought up Jewish at all and you decide to join the Jewish faith, what leads you to join it? And the pr- picture that at least Chazal is presenting of, of Yitro is someone who's on this intellectual inquiry, trying to figure out what is truth with a capital T and really asking those questions. And in some ways, reading that Midrash, it totally reminded me of the way the Rambam reads Avram's journey 
to belief, which of course, again, is not something that's told in, in, in the Torah. And he also reads it as like, Moshe's, you know, sorry, Abraham is questioning, like he's looking at the sun and he's looking at the moon and he's looking at the wind that covers the, you know, that passes the cloud over the sun and trying to figure out well, where is God, right? And it's that questioning and questioning that leads him finally to recognize, oh, there's one mover, there's one God, there aren't multiple gods, and he comes to this belief in Hashem. And I think both that model of Abraham and the model of Yitro that is presented by the Midrash contrast with other possible models. And one that I think might be the model of, of, of Roots, if, if we're going to say that Root converted, or even if she didn't convert, but at least coming to Hashem, it seems that Root's conversion is really not rooted in like this intellectual search for truth as much as a social um, recognition of who Naomi is. Right? She sees her mother-in-law, and oh, that's so interesting. That's like one other positive, you know, in-law relationship, I guess, um, where she sees her mother-in-law and wants to be with her mother-in-law. And it seems like whatever it is that her mother-in-law stands for, she's like, I want to be part of that. Right? It's coming from this role model of, oh, this is what it means to be part of Amishel. And I know not because I've read the Torah, not because I've tried out and read 3,000 books on, you know, Jewish history and Jewish faith and religion and halacha and whatever, but because I looked at someone who's living that life and it spoke to me and I got close in that way. And I think it's so interesting that you have these different ways. And I assume obviously everyone's different and different things. And for maybe some people be, you know, some balance between the two. But that for Root, it's really an entree into religion from a person who you believe in or a person who you admire. And for Yitro, it seems at least that it's coming from this intellectual inquiry. Wait, who is God? What is right? We very much see that in our lives. I think the vast majority of people who come closer to religion, whether it's through conversion or just Jews who are coming closer to traditional Judaism, I think the vast majority of them are actually much more of the root uh, category. There are people who are attracted to the lifestyle, or or they, you know, the people. It's the people. It's the family structure. It's the being, you know, enveloped and brought in that really brings people closer. Uh, whereas the intellectual model, is, and I'll just say by the way that Chabad. Hasidut really, it, they tap way into that model, right? right? Of the experience of the family. Right, come and I think over that, Shabbat and experience of Shabbat. Yeah, and they, right? they, they, they've got it right. They've got, clearly, they, well, they do a lot of things right. Uh, that's pretty obvious with their success. And I think that the model of the intellectual person who read and read and read and then came to a conclusion, there are those people, but they are far more few, they're far and few in between. Also, just because that kind of intellectual capacity is obviously not the, uh, it's not the lot of the masses, but I think also just because it's not the way people function so much when you're doing something that's so, uh, that's so life-defining, uh, like becoming closer to religious lifestyle, it very often, it really must be motivated by something that's that's emotional and experiential. Obviously, there's many who have a combination of both, but but yeah, I think that those those two models are are really, really important. And the, the truth is that I, I think I, I want us to think a little bit about also the way that Yitro is sort of characterized through, or this particular visit of his, when he comes to Moshe, through the prism of some of these, you know, modern 19th and 20th century commentators that we've been speaking about. It's very interesting how a lot of the modern commentators are not focused on the conversion aspect, right? Like you have Chazal that, like, the, not only do they say that he converted, but that the whole reason he came was to be part of Mazen Torah, or either that he just heard Mazen Torah, depending on how you read the chronology of the Prakim, and that that's why he came. Whereas when you get to like a professor of Kasuto, you get to Rav David Hoffman, 
they both take out religion from this visit totally. So before we get into what they what their opinions are, so Kasuto, our audience is deeply familiar with. We also focused on him also last week's uh, last week's parsha, but I just want to mention a little bit about who uh, Rav David Svi Hoffman was. Uh, and again, I want to just say I'm, I really was helped tremendously by. Um, by Avigail Rock's Zichronan uh, Vracha, by her book, which also exists in English now, of our great biblical commentators. And so just a little bit about, about Radat Hoffman. He's actually a really, really interesting figure because he's deeply influenced by sort of two different worlds. Uh, his, 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 life, his lifespan was from 1843 to 1921. He was born in Hungary, which is a much more traditional society. Its involvement in, you know, Haskala, in the Enlightenment movement, especially in the Jewish academic perspective, he initially learned in the yeshiva of the Maharam Shik, and he. But then he continued on to who was the one of the big talmidim of the Chazon Ish again. So think about like the tradition, the traditionalism of that sort of of that world. Uh, and then he completed academic studies, including a doctorate, uh, first in university in Vienna and then in Berlin. And he studied philosophy, history, and Semitic languages. Uh, he became connected, though, to the German Torah giants because he received a job in, in, in uh, teaching teachers in, in a seminary in, in Germany and then moved to Frankfurt and taught in, uh, in Rev Hirsch's school. And then his last and sort of longest uh, element of his career it always makes me feel very comforted to know that even these big people had multiple jobs before they found the one that fit. Uh, he joined the staff of the newly founded Hildesheimer Seminary for uh, the Rabbinic Seminary in 1873, and he taught there for almost 30 years. Uh, when when Professor uh, Hildesheimer died, Rav Hildesheimer, sorry, he became the head, he became the Nasi, the, the, the principal. And his Torah commentary that we'll speak about now was created initially from the lectures he gave there. Now, Sefer, Breshit, and Shmot were, were put together by students based on his lectures, but he starts writing a commentary on Vayikra. And so when you look to see his programmatic statements and his opinions on all different things, that's to be found in his introduction to the book of Vayikra. It's a fascinating commentary. I also say that one of the reasons why I'm so drawn to these to these commentaries from this century is because they're really almost the first who have, because they've studied academically, they have this concept that they want to kind of like survey the literature or even just put out there, like what are their programmatic statements? You know, with Rashi, we like pry from two sentences, you know, introduction to Shira Shirim and, you know, a comment in, uh, you know, in, in Breshid and we like try and figure out what is his approach. But these commentators, uh, they're in a world, they're studying and aware of a language that says, define what your approach is. Let's say, what are your red lines? And so they put that out there in their introduction. And it just, it makes it, there's a real clarity that comes there. I think Radat Hoffman is invaluable. He gives you sort of like the structure, the outline of every unit before he explains it. So that's also really helpful. And so I'll just say before I, I, I hand this back over to my partner in conversation, which is that, again, he initially is really from Hungary, which is a more traditional setting, but he goes deep into the, the world of the German Enlightenment. He even becomes a member, I'm going to pronounce this terribly wrong, but the Wissenschaft uh, des Judentums, again, 
again, horrible. Uh, but again, here we have a group of Jewish scholars, not necessarily Orthodox, who feel that scholarship in Jewish history and otherwise could benefit the standing of Jews in a post-emancipation age. Uh, just to understand how the politics went, Rav Hirsch was deeply against this group, uh, but Radatz Hoffman was a member of it. Uh, and I'll also just say that while we're really focusing on his Torah commentary, one of his main areas of interest, what he wrote, he wrote tremendously on, was actually in the area of Midrash Halacha. And so he's actually the one who comes up, and anyone who's familiar with this, the sort of the differentiations between the Beit Midrash of Rabbi Akiva versus Rabbi Ishmael, which is a very interesting topic in and of itself. He's actually the one who first writes about that. That that comes from him. I didn't know that until I researched this uh, this ep- for this episode. And I'll just the last, and I'll just say in terms of his red lines, uh, because he was involved in the world of biblical scholarship and he appreciated what it had to offer. But he writes straight out in his commentary that his red line is that for him, Moshe wrote the entirety of the Torah and it was all written uh, in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, meaning he doesn't is not he categorically will not accept any of the uh, any of the claims of biblical criticism. Let's say as opposed to Kasuto, who also rejects most of biblical criticism, but his red lines are much looser than Radatz Hoffman's in terms of the, uh, the religious red lines. Uh, and while and while Rav Hirsch, again, just to put him in perspective, while he really was appealing to the hearts and really focusing on the chinuch of the generation, Rodatz often was writing for a somewhat more intellectual crowd. And so he really felt that by using the tenets of academia through them and be through being rigorous, he would be able to, I would say, yes, even convince or show that the Torah is as rigorous and that the traditional perspective is uh, is true. Uh, and he thought that that would be, that was, those were his tools, right? So Rev Hirsch was using a, a different set of tools and often will sacrifice rigor uh, for, for things that were really, really meaningful and that are, you know, still lasting with us today. And Radas Hoffman's sort of speaking to a slightly different crowd of a little bit different essence. Yes. When I think about Rav Tzvi Hoffman, the way that you were um, describing him, I think I would word it as one of the things that makes him such an incredible parshan, especially for people living today, is the fact that he's combining the world of the Beit Midrash and academia okay? and trying to bring the academic standards of the world of academia and the secular world back into the Beit Midrash and saying, no, not everything goes, right? You have to have standards in your learning, um, taking whatever tools I can from the outside, apply them to the study of Tanakh or Torah as, you know, as a whole, um, but with this deep-seated belief in Torah Misinai and in Hashem and in everything that Torah stands for. So when you get to our story, um, looking at some of the moderns like Rav Dauti Hoffman and interestingly, Kasuto, both of them explained in a similar way. And I'm assuming that part of it is because of their modern outlook on, on Tanakh. Both of them shy away from the image of Yitro coming for religious purposes, Yitro coming from, for, for desire for, for conversion, because that's not explicit in the text. And instead... They're suggesting that Yitro is coming with a different hat on his head. He's coming with the hat of Yitro being a political leader. I don't know if either of them actually say this explicitly, but others do, that the word Kohen Midian can mean idolatrous priest, or priest at least. But Kohen in Tanakh also has one other meaning. It can also be a leader, somebody who is a governor or an authoritative figure, like the sons of, of David uh, in one of those lists where they give like the sort of like the, the cabinet of David. It has like that B'nai David or Kohanim. Well, obviously B'nai David aren't Kohanim in the sense that we think of as priests because they're from Shevet Yudah, but that they could have been some type of a administrative or a governmental figure is very possible. 
So again, I'm not sure if Rav Davis Yehavan himself says it, but he definitely is viewing Yitro as coming on this like delegation from Midian um, to basically greet Am Yisrael, and not just as a father-in-law, not just as a fellow in his spiritual quest, but as someone to make a breach, to make an alliance, to make some type of a covenant with Am Yisrael, with Moshe and the rest of the people. Um, and Kasuto actually reads it in a really interesting way, and then I'll get to Rav Davuti Ahmed in a second, where he's introduction to this section, and both Kasuto and Rav Davuti Ahmed, I think, as, as you mentioned, um, are very good at introducing a story, right? Where we don't just like, you know, do pasuk question, pasuk question, but you're looking at this large, broad scope and saying, this is what this whole unit is about. So in his introduction to the, uh, to, to the, to the section, Professor Kasuto talks about how B'nai Israel are at this, place right now where they've just gone through trials and tribulations, both in nature, meaning not having water, etc., and from hostile enemies, and that Yitro is coming to say, I recognize you as a new nation in the League of Nations. And here, Professor Kassito is probably thinking about the establishment of Medinat Israel. He's writing his perush soon after the establishment of the state. He dedicates his perush to, to Breshit, to um, his daughter-in-law, I think also his son who died in the Shoah, and his daughter-in-law who had been killed in the attack on the convoy to Mount Scopus, you know, pre-state. And so obviously, Medina Yisrael is very much in his head, and he sees, like, Yitro's coming as, like, oh my gosh, he's accepting Am Yisrael, right? We have someone who's accepting Medina Yisrael is coming into, into this. So um, Professor Rav Davidsby oh, Hoffman um, we did it very similarly without um, you know, d- drawing these connections because obviously he was way too early to be able to draw those connections. Um, but he's also reading it and saying, no, no, this is a covenant. They are making a breed. And then this is where I think his you know, academic side is coming in, even though, yes, other Mepharshim earlier have done this. But he's looking and says, well, what are the components of a breed? Okay? And he notes that in... In, in Tanakh, when you make a breed, it's often accompanied by a sacrifice and the eating of a meal. And he says, don't read this sacrifice like a lot of people who are suggesting that he's coming to convert and reading it as a religious sacrifice, that this sacrifice is my coming and saying, oh, I believe in Hashem now, and therefore I'm bringing a korban to Hashem. He's like, no, this is a korban as part of an alliance, as part of a treaty. Um, and he points something out that's really interesting, and that's the usage of the shame Elohim, as opposed to shame Hashem. Okay, and this, if Rav David Zvi being very, very aware of biblical criticisms and their, you know, noting when is shame Hashem used, when is shame Elohim used, etc. Um, and he says shame Hashem actually is the proper name of Hashem. Um, proper name of Hashem means personal interaction, having a personal connection with Hashem. He says, and that's what you would have expected if he was bringing a korban to Hashem. He's bringing a sacrifice to Hashem, then it should say Hashem. And he notes that in every other place in Tanakh where we talk about korbanot, it's associated with Shem Hashem. It says here, though, it's associated with Shem Elohim because he's actually not coming, thinking about God in the personal sense, as in Hashem, my Hashem, but rather this is God for him. It could have been even lowercase g, um, and that that's just part of the treaty process. Um, that you have a covenant, that you have a sacrifice, you share a meal, that would be sort of like a handshake today. And he points out that you have other examples of in Tanakh, when Lavan and Yaakov eat their meal together before they separate, um, he says, that's the making a covenant, right? They have a covenant and they go and eat a meal to go and seal the covenant over a meal. Um, so I think that's a very different way of reading um, Yitro in our Parsha. 
And it just shows like his three hats, right? You could read this whole part as Yitro, the family man. He's coming mainly to go and visit Moshe because he's his father-in-law and he wants to bring Tipora back. And this is all about a family reunion. Or you could read it like Chazal do. This is about a religious quest. I'm either coming for Matan Torah, just heard Matan Torah. I want to find God. Or like Rav David Hoffman, this is actually Yitro in his political role who's coming to go and accept Am Yisrael as a fellow nation and make a, a, a treaty with them. Wait, so I have two thoughts in response to that. The first is that in a way that connects it back to what we said earlier about them being two people on a journey. And I think that if we look at it, however we look at the meeting, but especially if we look at it as a meeting, sort of like creating a new alliance between them, then I think also we have to recognize that even they obviously knew each other before and they've met before, but it's almost like Yitro is coming to meet Moshe on the new terms of which he is now a human. He's now a leader of a nation, right? He's now performed miracles. And it's almost like you, they have to sort of re-meet each other and even create or re-establish their relationship with one another because Moshe's literally a different person than the person that that Tichero probably last knew. So I think that part of that also speaks to that piece about Moshe being on a journey, that whether it's a, a political or a friend or a familial level, Yitro and Moshe have to sort of, they have to catch up in their space. And certainly if it's somewhat political, then it needs to be done perhaps in a formal way. And just to add to that piece about, about a Brit, I mean, if you read the Psukim, it's a little bit lacking in Brit language. So I, I, so I just want to read, for example, but then suggest something else. For example, in, in uh, chapter 18, pasuk, uh, the 11th Pasuk, Yud Chet Yud Aleph, Right now I know that Hashem, this proper, this proper noun, is greater than all the other gods, which again, I think is a very powerful, again, we sort of referenced it in a backhand way to the documentary hypothesis, which separates different uh, units in the Torah based on the names of God. Here they're clearly mentioned together. Okay, that they then have this sort of communal meal where they bring in Aaron, uh, all this kinim, and they have a meal before God. So I, I want to say one thing, which is that it's a very religious passage, okay? It doesn't have the language of Brits necessarily, but the piece I want to add that I think could, could make that observation but still support the interpretation of Radatz Hoffman is that you're talking about two very religious people. And if you would take two rabbis who want to create some sort of political right alliance with each other, or a rabbi and a priest, let's say, uh, a, a Christian priest, there is a natural language that they use, meaning they are both coming from a religious perspective. And I, I would like, I, I think, I would imagine that even if they're going to be speaking politically, they are still going to infuse their conversations with the language that's most natural to them. So even, you know, eating a meal to solidify a relationship is something that's done all over. I mean, I'm, the, the the example that pops up for me is Ahasuerus and Haman when they okay. sit down to eat a meal right after, after he's convinced him of some plan that he's not totally transparent about, but he convinced them of some plan. Uh, I'm thinking of a meal also in a negative context. So the brothers, after they sell Yosef, meaning uh, like there's there's yeah. the eating of a meal that sort of solidifies something. So I totally agree with that interpretation that something here has happened. And while the language does, it does support a little bit this religious concept of that something has changed here religiously, I think that even if it is something political, it's also speaking in the language that Moshe and Yitro likely would have spoken in uh, as two such deeply religious figures. Right, I think that makes a lot of sense. Right, that 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 any covenant that's going to be made between the two of them is obviously going to bring 
push them into it. I mean, even if you just think about the founding fathers of the U.S., right? In God we trust, right? Today, that's such a foreign concept that people would be like, what do you bring God in? Like, they were all religious people, right? And so that's a natural part of the conversation. Here, too, this is going to be a natural part of the conversation. I think as we sort of start to wind down, I think the last point I want us to discuss is the advice. You mentioned earlier in the conversation in Akedat Yitzchak, and I guess I would love to hear that or whatever else you wanted to share with us about the advice that Dietro offers. So I think one of the things that's highlighted, obviously, in our parak is Yitro giving advice to Moshe, and Moshe, seemingly at least, accepting that advice. Um, reading the Parsha, Barbanel, though, asked, I think, a really important question says, look, this whole story on one level though makes no sense. Moshe's standing there. There's a massively long line of people and they're all waiting to talk to Moshe. And Yitro comes up and says, wait, Moshe, I have this great solution for your problem. Why don't you just delegate responsibility and go and collect a bunch of people and you can all go and divide up all the responsibilities. People won't have such a long line. And it's great advice, but it's also really simple advice. And a and, and people question, like, wait, how is it that Moshe didn't come up with that on his own, right? You go to any bank in Israel, and you see that there's one teller, and the entire bank population of the people who are visiting say, why in the world is there only one teller? We need another teller, right? It's a very easy to come up with it. You don't have to be, like, the biggest Hamid Chacham to go and figure out that if there's too many people for one person, you need to get assistance. And yet it's presented in Tanakh as if this is really important advice that Moshe didn't come up with on his own. I think it's, you know, it's a really important question. And, you know, different people answered in different ways. Well, Bag, I think, has this, has a really interesting answer where he suggests that due to Moshe's great spirituality, Moshe simply wasn't great on the practical level of how to deal with people, right? If you're someone who just spoke to Hashem for 40 days or you're about to speak to, you know, there's someone who can speak to Hashem for 40 days straight, Right? You're in a different place than, than little old me. And so the kind of questions of like, oh, practical, how you can actually do this in a better way just isn't something that, that, you, know, that, that, that you think of. And Rabbi does not mean that at all in a negative way to Moshe. He's like, no, no. Naima, Naima, we all know wonderful teachers who are horrible administrators. I don't think you have to belabor the point. Right, yes, exactly. we're with you. Okay. okay. Um, so I think so. I think that you know that's really interesting. Um, Rav Eitan Meir um, gave a different analogy, which I think is also important: is that sometimes it's the need for an outsider consultant. Okay, when you're inside, even though it should have been obvious to you, it's just not because you're too much inside, and that it's Yitro who's coming from the outside and saying, "Wait, Moshe, you just didn't pay attention to this." Okay, and and he's able to say it, and this is where I think Yitro's greatness comes in. Somehow he's able to say it in a way that Moshe can hear. Because yeah, totally. sometimes, you know, someone's giving you great advice, but if you didn't think of it yourself, you know, you're not not willing to hear it. Um, Akida Yitzchak comes over with like a much more, um, in some ways, radical, but also fascinating um, approach. He suggests that... I'm just just jumping in. It's Rav Yitzchak yeah. Arama, and he's writing in which century? He's a he's a contemporary of, of Barbanel, so right before Barbanel, okay, so, so 15th century. 15th century, okay, yeah. So the Akida Yitzchak, Rav Yitzchak Arama, in his commentary... Um, suggests that there's a reason that Moshe didn't originally think of Yitro's advice is because there's no law system in place. And Moshe says to himself, how can I delegate responsibility 
nobody knows what to educate. How are they going to know what the halacha is, right? I'm only the I'm only one that has enough confidence in in, in, in in being able to give them the right legal answer to their question. So of course it has to be me. It's not that like I wouldn't like it to be me, but it can't be anybody else. Yitro was suggesting to Moshe was the fact that there's a need for a divine code of civil law. Meaning in the time of Tanakh, if you look at most countries, there is separation of church and state where the king is the person who writes civil law. Cultic law is whatever you believed in from your God. I don't know if they thought the priest or whoever it is, but it's separate, right? But he says that civil law was something that was mandated by the king. And he suggests that Moshe living in that time might have actually thought that that's what it was supposed to be in Am Yisrael as well. And that what Moshe was doing was sort of ad hoc creating that civil law that at some point would have then later been written down, right? And so whenever a you know, case came up, he would say, this is what makes sense to do. And eventually he was thinking that it's supposed to be that. And what Yitzchak suggests that Yitro is suggesting is that Yitro is telling him, no, no, no. If you do this, what I'm suggesting, and God commands you, then you'll be able to stand. Okay? And so he reads that Pasuk of as literally, if you allow Hashem to make mitzvot in this area, then you'll have a code of civil law that everyone just has to learn and then they'll be able to go and help you out. Um, and Akedat Yitzhak is very aware of the fact that this sounds extremely radical um, and that, like, what are you saying that? Like, all of Meaning the her, radical piece is that, that wasn't, it wasn't God's intention that to create it was, a right, system. That, that this right. foreigner is coming in with this idea of this intention. And he points out that there's a lot of places in Tanakh where we get a halacha after people introduce something, right? Um, you know, Pesach Sheni, right? That there's a circumstance that comes up, there's some problem, and people suggest something, and then Hashem says, and now this is the halacha. So he says this is the same thing, and that doesn't necessarily mean that Hashem wasn't planning on doing it, uh, you know, anyway, but that he on his own came up with the idea that it was, that this would be something that would be necessary. And of course, this is an incredible flaw because this is one of the things that totally makes Torah unique, that we actually do have civil law and cultic law and religious law, bin adam l'chaviroz and bin adam l'makoms all together in Torah. And that really was unique in ancient society, especially, but also in, in modern society. Um, and to say that that might have been sort of Yitro's contribution I think another piece that comes out from that is also this idea of like, I don't want to use too big of terms, but like, I don't know if it's gradual revelation or this idea that that the Torah, that ultimately, even if God plans to create a certain system, that he prefers that it come from the ground up, um, that I think that, I don't know if this is what the Akedat Yitzchak intended, but it's also a little bit drawing from how the halachic process functions, meaning halachic process takes a case, and there's a lot to say on this on, on like a legalistic level, but there's a case that happens and that will draw out the, the law itself. And so there's something in what he's describing that also sort of mimics that sort of movement of we're first going to wait for the real life scenario to come up and then we're going to sort of draw out what the legalistic approach to it should be. So I think there's also like what's also unique about Torah is that it continually develops according to the, the human scenarios in which it's necessary. I guess I wanted to, uh, with that, bring it to sort of a last point point about what I said in your initial uh, biography, which is about the website Al-Hatorah, which I, I will say that I use it 
every day of my life. Um, this was long before I've ever spoken to you. Uh, it's constantly open on my desktop. That's how I prepare shirim. It's how I how I have access. I I, I want to say something, and I know that it's it's quite a big statement, but I feel like what. Nechama Leibovitz did for many commentators that she made them accessible to people. No one knew who the Akedat Yitzchak was. Nobody knew who, uh, you know, who Beno Yaakov was. But because of her accessibility to different languages and just her vast knowledge, the world then had those commentaries. I feel like that's a lot for me. What's happened also from Ala Torah, meaning I didn't know Rabbi Tzvi Hoffman. Uh, and there's a commentary. I'm for sure saying his name wrong, but like. Reggio or something, and like yeah, these yeah. are not the whole uh, Moshe. Uh, right. All these commentators that like the only person you might have heard like were people who were like crazy. Your crazy teachers from like Midrashot who like knew about like you know the super commentary. that they were really obscure. So uh, with that uh, introduction, I first just want to say thank you because I literally use it every day of my life. And can you just tell us a little bit about about this website? Sure. Okay. So the truth is, um, most part has to go to my husband, Tehillel, um, who it was his vision and it's his hard work. I would say 99.8 to 9% of Al Torah is really um, due to him. And um, one of the things that I think um, I wanted to just attach to what we were talking about um, with Rav David Hoffman, and um, when we try to think about, you know, how to describe Al Torah to a new user. So one of the things that we think makes Al-Torah stand out is what I said before and about Rav Zvi Hoffman is the idea of trying to combine the worlds of the Beit Midrash and academia, um, where Al-Torah is a website, which is supposed to be a platform for learning. So it's not just a database of sources, nor on the other hand, is it just an archive of articles, but it's really supposed to, aims to um, create user-friendly learning environment for the best learning of Torah but with academic standards, where it should be accessible to anyone, to a layman, but also appreciated by a scholar, so that a lot of the texts that are on the site, for example, have been created by working off manuscripts, which have, you know, sometimes textual apparatus. But again, for the layman, you could close it. You know, if, you, if, if it's not helpful for you, you close it. If it's helpful for you, you can use it. So that, for example, that if, if, if Ramban made additions to his commentary when he got to Israel, that those additions will be accessible through Allah Torah. So, um, so one of the goals, of course, is, is to make Torah accessible and to make th- this combination of the worlds of the Beit Midrash and academia. Um, and to do so, it tries to combine, I guess, a focus on text, um, tools, and topics. Meaning, obviously, the basis of any learning is to have text. And so there's been an effort to get text and good text and good quality text and inaccessible text so that Rav David Hassan can be learned by everybody. That someone has never heard of the Halal Moshe, he can learn him. The Rechatim, the Vek'ai, you've never heard of him, go try him out. Okay. In addition, obviously, to all our, you know, more, more, more well-known um, commentaries, um, but also tools so that when you're learning, how can I now actually make this experience, you know, help me understand those commentaries. And so some of those tools are a clickable concordance, for example, a Tanakh lab for literary analysis, um, lots of different types of searches, and then things that are, I guess, in some ways, not so much a tool, but just an easier thing, like bolding Dibor HaMatchel's dividing up one of those long rambans so that it's not just one chunk of text, dividing up a barbanel by pasuk so that you can actually find where he says what you want to say or put the midrash by the pasukim and not just have it be one long midrash. 
things like that, which I guess aren't a tool, but 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 are, are better helpful. Um, having visual aids such as this thing called Olam Hamikra, which will give you maps and archaeological finds and uh, you know different things from flora and fauna, so that when I look at a pasuk, I can actually understand things that I need a knowledge that's sort of outside of Tanakh that that can help me. Um, so all of that together, and obviously we're, we're focused on Tanakh right now, but this exists for Torah Shabbat Peh and for Halakha in Yet Hashem's soon Sidor. That was actually on the works right before the war broke out. But my son, who is the um, tech person, has been in Aza since the beginning of the war, so that's sort of on hold. Um, but um, but Amir Hashem, he's actually getting out, so Baruch Hashem, and hopefully that will you know be next in line. Um, and then the third part of the site is um, is topics where um, we'll take an issue and we will um, take all of those texts, all those different Mephoshim, basically mine 2,500 years worth of Parshanut from pre um, you know, pre all the way to modern scholars and try to put together what are the main questions in whatever issue you're looking at. So let's say you were looking at, you know, I don't know, even just the character of Yitro, uh, you know, and compare. How do different people view? Why is he coming to visit Moshe right now? And collect all those different sources and allow the user to see an analysis, but also see the sources simultaneously so that you can actually analyze yourself, but still get someone else's analysis. Agree or disagree. That's great. Um, and hopefully for teachers, um, have a lot of that stuff available together. Um, that's just a teeny, teeny taste of all that. Yeah, it's really uh, it's really phenomenal. I encourage everyone to to you know jump in and try it alatora.org. And I'll just say that for me, something that was really, and I know there are other platforms out there that came after Alatora um, that you can also, you know, look at different commentators. For me, the big, big, uh, the big difference is one that whole Dibor Matchil that you said is so is so critical because it just like can, I don't I I for sure have something that I it has a name, but it's very hard for me to visualize things. And so when they're in front of me and they're lined up next to each other, I mean that's like my entire life challenge in learning Gemara and and, and Mishnah because if it was written in a chart, I would be okay, but you have to keep making the charts. And there's something about the way that you guys uh, format all of the the commentators that when I can see them next to each other underneath the pasuk, it, it really comes together in a much more holistic way. And that for me has been the game changer. Um, because even if you would put things on a Word document back in the day, you wouldn't be able to line them up in a way that was so clear. And so that, that really has been something that's phenomenal. So I really, really appreciate that. I encourage everyone to check it out. And thank you so much for coming and speaking to us today. This was such a, a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. It was very enjoyable and it's just fun talking to her. Thanks for listening to this week's episode from Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. If you would like to sponsor an episode, please contact the Matan office or email me at podcast.matan.org.il. Please do us and all women's Torah learning a favor and share this episode with all of your friends and family. 